Hi there, I'm Jackie the Joke Man Marling, and I've had the exquisite pleasure of once again being on Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast with the wonderful Gilbert Gottfried and the equally amazing Frank Santo Padre. This is Gilbert Gottfried saying, Go see my documentary, Gilbert. It's a documentary about me. It opens November 3rd at IFC Theaters in New York City and November 10th in L.A. and select cities. That's gilbertmovie.com to buy tickets and find information. But more importantly, buy tickets. This is Gilbert Gottfried, and this is Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast with my co-host Frank Santo Padre, and we're once again recording at Nutmeg with our engineer Frank Verderosa. Our guest this week is someone we've wanted to talk to since this podcast started back in 2014. She's an author, healer, public speaker, and one of the most prolific and sought-after actresses in show business with over 230 screen roles to her credit. You've seen her in TV shows such as Lou Grant, Taxi, L.A. Law, Ally McBeal, Bones, My Name is Earl, Felicity, Grimm, General Hospital, The Office, and on the big screen and popular movies like Ten, Critters, Cujo, The Brighteners, The Hills Have Eyes, The Howling, and a little film called E.T., The Extraterrestrial. In a career spanning over 40 years, She's worked for filmmakers such as Wes Craven, Joe Dante, Peter Jackson, Blake Edwards, and Steven Spielberg, and shared the screen with some of our favorite actors, including M. Emmett Walsh, Kevin McCarthy, Ruth Gordon, Slim Pickens, Theodore Bakel and John Carradine. Please welcome to the show one of the Silver Screen's great scream queens and a (laughs) woman who famously said after shooting the movie Cujo, I hope I never see another Pinto again for the rest of my life. The lovely and talented Dee Wallace. <laughs> oh, I can see things are going to come back to haunt me in the next hour. Okay. <laughs> it's one of those shows, Dee. OMG. <laughs> well, welcome. Well, thanks. It's great to be here, boys. Now, I was thinking of like, uh, okay, Cujo, The Howling, 
the hills have eyes, and E.T. If you had been in just one of those and nothing else, I I would demand you go on the podcast. (laughs) But you're an old four as well as a million other things. Well, thank you. I have been very, very fortunate in my career. I have, and I've gotten some really good, juicy stuff to do. <laughs> now, in Cujo, uh, you, you, you did go uh, a little crazy in that, didn't you? Well, you said it was the well, hardest thing you've ever had to do on screen. It absolutely is still the hardest wow. thing I've ever had to do. Uh, on screen and and the script called for me going batshit crazy (laughs) (laughs) so so you know uh we as actresses we strive to please so i did i was telling d it just came up today at work whoopi's obsessed with with uh stephen king movies we were just happened to be talking about cujo today and i said guess who's on the show tonight yeah d wallace well i think whoopi and i should should have stephen write a a a horror film for both of us oh, a buddy movie yeah, yeah a- boy would it, that would be an honor to do something with whoopi now i'll tell here, her here's something i want to know with cujo were there a bunch of different dogs and maybe some mechanical dogs also how oh, you know already don't you? <laughs> <laughs> i can tell yes there were uh eight or nine dogs or up to thirteen, including the the black lab and and a couple of other. See, there were they were all trained to go after toys for different tricks. They all had to be trained to do different kinds of tricks. Carl Miller um, was the trainer, and those dogs were trained within an inch of their lives. Uh, unbelievably, unbelievably. Um, Incredible to work with these dogs. This is what I have. Five St. Bernards. Let's see if my information is correct. One mechanical head and one guy in a dog costume. Does that sound right? No, I, there were more like eight wow. or nine dogs. Yeah. Wow. And uh, definitely a, a, a stuntman in a dog suit and a mechanical head when he rammed, you know, his sure. the, the dog rammed his head against the car. That was a mechanical head. Um. And then there was this black lab who also had a suit, but he didn't end up doing anything in the movie. And giving credit where it's due, Stephen King said it was the best performance in any of his adaptations. I love you, Stephen. <laughs> what I a do. nice one. I, I, have, I, I ha- actually have a clip of that on a DVD at home that one of my friends uh, sent me. Very, very gracious of him. When you consider you're talking about Kathy Bates and Nicholson and Shawshank and Sissy Spacek, that's quite a compliment. Indeed. You know what's what's funny? I had a flashback of all things the Rodney Dangerfield movie where I have to reach into a cage and there was a Rottweiler in there. And the Rottweiler is barking and showing its fangs and growling and slamming against the cage. And they say, now reach in and <laughs> grab it by the collar. And I, I kept saying, I'm not doing that. It's going to rip my arm off. And and the hardest part about it was when I did reach in, it would quiet down and back up. So they're trained to wow. be vicious dogs. Yeah. They act. 
in movies. Yeah, I, I mean, we had to whip up egg whites for the foam and, you know, use fake blood with molasses and the flies. Oh, the flies. Lord have mercy, the flies on Cujo. They just love that, and they love me. <laughs> but, um, yeah, the, I mean, the big attack scene in the car on Cujo, um, it's so well edited. It's me and the stuntman mm-hmm. and the stunt woman and the real dog all intercut. And the stunt woman had uh, the toy around her neck. And when she lunged forward, that was the dog's cue to lunge at her. And as soon as she pulled back, the dog would pull back. It was unbelievable to watch. Now, we got it in one take. And uh, Lewis, our director, said, cut, we got it. And she lunged forward and said, yes, before somebody had the hand on the dog, and the dog lunged forward and got a little bit of her nose. Ooh. Oh, jeez. Uh, and I had I had begged Dan Blatt, our producer, to let me do that, to let because I do a lot of my stunts in my movies. And he was going to it at the last minute, and he said, oh, D, if something happens, you know, you're the money, and we go down. And, and so he came up kind of with this, shit-kicking grin afterwards and said, and that's why we didn't want you to do it. <laughs> oh, know? he turned out to be right. Well, yeah, but it wasn't the dog's fault. Right, of course. You see, he, the dog was doing what he of was course. trained to do. And and so. in that movie, you're a mother protecting her son. And I think you said in an interview that it really brought out your motherly instincts that you were protecting this little boy. Uh, absolutely. Um, you know, I, you know, I've worked with a lot of kids and dogs. <laughs> That's just so much and for I'm working with kids here. and animals. Yeah. Um, but whenever I like Drew, I was very protective Drew of Barrymore. Drew in, in yeah. ET, and a lot of that is because uh, a, a young child cannot distinguish between reality and fantasy, so. I would go over before the scene, for example, when we went in to see E.T. dying on the table. And I went to get Drew, and I said, now, Drew, we're going to go do this scene. But, you know, E.T.'s acting just like we act, right? And he's not really dying. He's not sick. He's just acting. I know, Dee, do you think I'm stupid? Which is why Stephen put that line in there, because Drew said that all the time. Wow. So I picked her up, and we walked in, and she took one look of E.T. and went, burst into tears. And went, he's dying. He's dying. So, you know, yeah, when you work with really young children like that, you do, I do anyway, become very protective and caretaking of them. And you were a teacher in real life. And you used <laughs> back to, in the olden days. Back in the day, but you used to give uh, Drew Barrymore like lessons, like teaching. Oh well, certainly not acting. No, no, that, but I no. mean, just like a teacher. Like I don't. Well, know what... yeah, yeah, and I think most moms are natural teachers, too. I think it's an interchangeable role, and I. It's so funny because. Uh, 
in most of my interviews, um, I'll always get the question, how could you play all those parts before you had children? How could you play them so really? And I said, well, I, I didn't have children, but I had a mother. Right, of course. <laughs> I knew my relationship with my mother and everything my mother gave up for me. Uh, she was a single parent a lot of my life. And um, so I I naturally just had that instilled in me. And I think really most women do uh, have that natural motherly instinct. Maybe not when they have to remember lines at the same time, but I think we all have it. Since you bring up your mom, let's just do a little backstory here on you. are from the Midwest, the heartland. From, from Kansas, from baby. Kansas. And Kansas City. You're not a not a showbiz family at all. I mean, no no uncles, no grandparents. You were no, mo- you were no, modeling. Nobody famous. Yeah. You were modeling but at my, a tender age. I started modeling when I was about four years old. Out of necessity, really, um, because we were very poor and um I helped pay the bills. I was a, a little toe headed kid. And beautiful Shirley Temple locks. And um, and my mother was my first acting teacher. She was a beautiful actress who worked in community theater and, and produced and directed all the plays at our church. And Grandma would do um, the costumes and Daddy would do the scenery. And so I did have that instilled in me at a very, very early age. But, no, I, I don't come from anybody that's really well, – I should clarify. – could have done much yeah, for what me. I, I meant to clarify. <laughs> I knew your mother acted in local productions and that there was that you come from a family of talented people. I just meant you didn't have any connections in the business. No, you weren't uh, – it, it, it wasn't a showbiz family by any means. No. And, and your upbringing – like, well, your father had a drinking problem. Yes, my dad was an incredibly creative, amazing man. He was an entrepreneur, really, but he was very broken by the war. He had been uh, worked for the Red Cross during the war and um, would try to create something, and something always fell through about it. And so we didn't have a lot of money. My mom worked as a secretary. My my dad um, really did. I, I think I get an enormous amount of creativity from both of my parents, but he ended up committing suicide when I was a senior in high school. And, um, you know, I just want to take a minute to say something about that, that if there's anybody out there that's dealing with that right now, give up your guilt. It wasn't your fault. Um, you couldn't have done anything about it. And more than anything, I know from my healing work, mo- more than anything, um, they just want you to move on and be happy, really. So I invite everybody out there that has experienced anything around that to to move on. So did you whip yourself over the years saying, oh, it was my fault, I should have done something differently? Um, I think I did for a year or two, but I I don't know. I have this 
innate ability to move on. I've had some horrendous hardship in my life and a lot of it. And um, I, I, I just, you know, there's something to pick yourself off. Pick yourself up, dust yourself off, and start yeah. all over again. Because if if you don't, you just remain a victim, um, and a, really a victim to yourself. It's not a victim to anybody else in the world. You're 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 creating a victimness to your own victimization, and um, the world doesn't need any more of that. Quite frankly, sure. And 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 uh, I guess I'm stating the obvious, Steve. But so, some of these things in your background is is what is that what inspired you to do some of the healing work and some of the work that you're doing now for people that you that, um, that you come from. You, you yeah, you're in touch probably. with that kind of struggle. Um, sure, and and um, and hardship, yeah. and um, you know, I I had to I also, as you know, I'm sure lost my husband at yes. a very early. Uh, age. We were married 18 years. He's the father of my daughter. And um, just had a lot of hardship sure. through my life. And uh, I, th- I think that always going, the lesson that I learned about always going back to love, that love heals everything, conquers everything, creates everything, and if any of you out there are doing anything that's really keeping you from experiencing the self-love for yourself, you really need to look at that because you're here to be powerful. You're here to be your own creator and see how powerful you are around that. And you can't do that when you're a victim. But even when I was a little girl, I would... I would hear voices. <laughs> you know, I just thought, like most kids, it's your imagination. Mm-hmm. And and your imagination and your channel are pretty much can be the same thing, quite frankly. And, um, you know, one time I woke up in the middle of the night and I was very close to my grandmother. And I went to wake my mom up and I said, something's wrong with with grandma, something wrong is wrong over at grandma's house and we have to go. And I would think I was in middle school and, you know, God bless my mother. She didn't say, are you stupid? It's the middle of the night, go back to bed. And so we tried calling grandma, but grandma turned her phone way down at night. And so bless my mom. She had to get up at six to go to work, but she and I slept over there to my grandma's house and the cat had gotten up on the stove and turned the uh, turned the wow. gas on. Wow! So oh, you're intuitive you know? too. Well, I we're all intuitive. It's just that we most of us have learned to turn it off. That's fascinating. That you, you know, that you we've been made fun of, or we've said, "Ooh, you know, we're going to go to hell if we look at that stuff." And really, that's who we are. We're all connected to this amazing information that's available to everybody, but you have to ask, you know, ask and you receive. And your family, with the poverty, it was like you you didn't have money, so you would barter. Yes. My mom bartered all my classes for me. Um, 
and she would go around and do um, what we used to call readings. You would call them monologues now. But um, for the mayor and the music society, and she was determined that she was going to introduce the possibility to her children of rising up in, in stature within the society. And this was the way she went about doing it. And she, um, from my dance lessons, she would write poetry for um, the studio recital, and she would get out and perform the poetry in between each act of of the recital, and um, and in exchange for my year of lessons, um, and of course we became very close friends with. My teacher's name was Ermgard Altwater. She was a prima ballerina from Germany that I studied with. And and that's just who my mom was. Um, and my dad, uh, early in his life, he uh, sold comics called Dell Comics. And oh, Dell sure. Comics were a subsidiary of Walt Disney. We remember Dell Comics. Oh, yeah. Yeah, those were big. Very big, and I was the Dell Comic Queen in the Midwest. I had this little... Uh, That's fantastic. This little um, sequin oh, crown I that, that I would wear, and and I did public relations with Gene Autry and everything and wrote on Champ, and oh, you wow. know, because he was associated with Disney. And so they got me into all kinds of things. Yeah, when I was little. And now while Gilbert heads into the nutmeg kitchen to steal more Perrier, (laughs) a word from our sponsor. (laughs) Hi, I'm Mick Garris, and I'm with Gilbert Gottfried on the Amazing Colossal Podcast. Just kidding, it's all Frank. Now, unfortunately, we return to our show. So, so at what point, I mean, you, you took elocution lessons, you danced, you did this, the, you were the Del, the Del, what were you, the Del Comics princess? Queen, The darling. Del, excuse me. Don't downgrade me Shame on me. The Del Comics queen. At what point did you decide that, because if I have my research right, and correct me if I don't, you'd never been out of Kansas when you decided to go to New York City. That's true. And that's a, I was that's a gutsy move. Well, I, I look at it more as naivete, okay. quite frankly. Um, sure it was. Um, I taught high school. I have a teaching degree, and I was teaching high school. And I thought, oh, my God, if I don't go now, I am never, ever going to get out of this, right? And I love teaching. I taught all my life. I still teach 
in my healing work. I and I had my own dance school. I have had my acting own acting studio for eighteen years here. But in the library, we got the New York Times, and there was this article uh, about how Hal Prince was looking for an unknown in his new musical, which ended up to be a little night music. The legendary theater director Hal Prince, for our listeners, yeah, a giant and. Giant producer, director on Broadway. And so I had my brother's friend who had taken pictures for the high school newspaper (laughs) come over and take an incredibly cheesy picture of me on the bed. And who knew? I didn't know what the heck a headshot was. (laughs) And then I wrote this even cheesier letter that said, oh, Mr. Prince, you know, just think an unknown from Kansas. Just think of the publicity you could get out of that. I'm not kidding. <laughs> well, three weeks later, and I, I went ahead and I bought my ticket to go to New York at the end of the summer. I, I had it all planned out. I was going to work two jobs and save up everything that I made so that I could uh, go to New York. So three weeks later, Mr. Prince's secretary calls me and said, Miss Wallace, Mr. Prince got your picture and your letter, and he would fly, like to fly you to New York to audition. And I went, oh, my God, that's so cool. Well, when uh-huh. does he need me? And she gave me the date, and I said, oh, that's the day I get in. What time does he need me? Well, we don't need you to at the theater till five, right? So he would have paid my flight and everything, but right. that's I was raised. That's how I was raised, man. So the day I landed in New York City, I took everything I owned, gave it to a cab driver, said, hi, this is my address. I haven't been there yet, but can you take all my stuff there and leave it with the doorman? Because I have an audition with Hal Prince. Oh, jeez. <laughs> so trusting. And I went, I went down to Rockefeller Center, and I got down to the last five girls wow. in the acting and the dancing. And then they said, all right, Mr. Prince would like to hear you sing now. And I went, oh, I didn't know we had to sing. And the lady looks at me and he said, well, dear, it is a musical. Yeah, it's right there in the title. (laughs) Yeah. So the day I land in New York City, I sang Happy Birthday. Very mediocrely for Al Prince. The, The accompanist said, what key, honey? And I went, somewhere in the middle. But... You know, by the time I left, all the best gypsies were there. I knew who to study dance with. I knew who to study acting with. I knew how to get a voice teacher, you know. And I thought, well, that was a pretty good first day. I'd say. <laughs> and and you know? did you train at one point with Uta Hagen? I did. Wow. The That's another Uta Hagen. quite incredible story. Uh, I met a guy at an audition. And he was an actor, and he was studying uh, in the at the Berghoff studio. And he said, that's the only place to study, D. Anybody that's anybody has to study there. And even if you don't study with Uta. So 
at 4 a.m. in the morning. Oh, well, he's so I said, okay, okay. And I registered and he's he says, well, what are you what are you going to perform? And I said, oh, I'm going to do a scene from this little play I did in Kansas City called Mary Mary. And he looked at me like I was flipping nuts. And he said, you cannot go in. you got to do something from the classics or something. Uta Hagen's going to laugh you out of the room, Dee. And I said, I don't care. I did this play, and I feel really comfortable. And that's what I mean. See, I was just naive, and I just believed in myself. And I believed that the world was going to take care of me. So off we go to audition for Uta Hagen. And he says, I'm telling you, she's going to stop you, you know, like 15 lines into this. And, you know, there's no way, Dee. So I said, you know, I'm going to do Mary Mary. So we go in and we start the interview. And then I get up to do my scene. And about 15 lines in, she stops me, and he looks at me very smugly, and she says to me, who'd you study with, sweetheart? And I said, well, Miss Hagen, um, I've really studied with my mom in Kansas. And bless her, she looked at me and she said, well, she taught you really well, and oh, I, would like you to ha- I would like you to come into my class, at oh. which point I turned and looked at him very smugly. <laughs> I, I felt somewhat vindicated there. How but, about that? I mean, my whole, the whole, my whole career, that's the way it happened. You know, I just, I would meet people in coffee shops. I talk a lot about this in my book, Bright Light. And, you know, it's kind of my autobiography taught through all my big pictures and and directors that I've worked with, but also kind of the spiritual lessons Mm -hmm. that I've learned along the way. And I'm a big fan of naivete. You don't put up any walls in front of yourself. You don't go in with expectations that you're going to lose or they're not going to like it or anything like that. You just go, you know, let's put on a show. I'm going to go to Kansas and be a big star. (laughs) It's it's worked for you. You know what? It has worked for me. What's funny about this is when people interview me, and I mean it, I always say what I had in my favor was stupidity. Well, yeah. yeah. And it was stupidity that made me think I could support myself in show business. Tell D how young you were when you did stand up. Uh, first first time. time I got up on a stage, I was on a comedy club, I was 15. Oh, my God. And I was... <laughs> wow. And, and that, then I would go uh, to the clubs every night, wouldn't make a penny. And uh, with all the rejections, I was just too stupid. <laughs> Naive. To, yeah, yeah. 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 Yeah, but you were having fun, too. And that's such a big part of the creation process. You know, if but, you want to get what you want, you got to have fun. you got to. It, it's like now I think back and I think I I would, you know, when people say to me, I, I'm, I'm an aspiring actor or a comic, I always feel like, well, can't you just get bottles out of the trash cans in the street <laughs> and turn it in for the fight? That makes sense to me. Show business yeah. 
So Doesn't make sense. All these years later. And that's why you did it. Yeah, she's right. All these years later, it's still a surprise to you. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. even after all the success. He never loses touch with that. And isn't that wonderful? That's he, wonderful he, that we can live a life doing what we love and be surprised every day. And, yeah. and here's True. something I have in a lot of people, and I wonder if you have this, that you feel like one day the the jig will be up, like they're going to find out. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, oh, that person doesn't belong here. You know what scares me more is that one day I'm going to find out. <laughs> oh, that's funny. It's very funny. And I got to ask you, I mean, look, there's no bigger director now than Steven Spielberg. So what was he like to work with? Well, Steven's brilliant. He's brilliant. He knows exactly what he wants. He finds the exact talent that is what he wants. And and then he guides you, but he he also lets you bring in your essence and your ideas. And all of the great directors that I've worked for, all of them, the great ones, that's the way they work. The smaller the director, the more you're micromanaged. That's interesting. How did he see yeah. you? How did did he see you in something, D? Did you was that a straight up audition for ET? Actually, I auditioned for used cars. Oh, that's right. Oh, that's right. So you were in, 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 for, for Zemeckis. Fortunately, he uh, he did not pick me for that one. He saw, see, he wanted everybody in ET to be childlike, and he thought I had that vulnerability and childlikeness that he wanted in the mom. And so he saved me. Oh darn! And I, I got a flashback. Yeah, because you worked on ET. Obviously, I, I was in LA years ago working on something, and I wound up going to see ET with Larry David. <laughs> oh my god! Wow! And and the two of us watch ET. And then when the movie ends and we're walking out of the theater, uh, Larry has on his usual confused and disgusted look that he has 24 hours a day. And he (laughs) says to me, shaking his head, and he goes, so so, uh, what is this? Uh, She wanted to fuck this creature? Oh, my God. (laughs) I think he got it. I think, <laughs> I think he missed it. Yeah, yeah, he, <laughs> he missed the point. OMG. Larry missed the whole magic. <laughs> you think? Well, Do well, you think? Well, D, you said when you read the script, you knew that you were reading something extraordinary. Yes. Melissa Matheson's script. Melissa, God bless her. Yeah. What a loss. Yeah. Yes, she's a great talent absolutely. Too. You know, I. And they wouldn't send it to me. I had to go over to the studio behind locked doors, I might add, and read the script. And I remember calling my agent and said, look, I I don't think this is going to do a lot for me, but I think this is a script that's going to do a lot for the world, and I want to be a part of this film. Yeah, you call it this generation's uh, Wizard of Oz, which I think is you bet. interesting. It's apt. You know, all of the great films that stay around as long as E.T. and Wizard of Oz and Peter Pan, they all 
kind of have the same message. Be childlike. Know you have your own power and keep your heart open. It's not that we don't believe you, honey. Well, it was real, I swear. What are you going as, Gert? I'm going as a cowgirl. So what else is here? Maybe it was an iguana. It was no iguana. Maybe a... a you know how they say there are uh, alligators in the sewers? Alligators in the sewers. All we're trying to say is maybe you just probably imagined it. I couldn't have imagined it. Maybe it was a pervert or deformed kid or something. A deformed kid. Maybe uh, an elf or a leprechaun. It was nothing like that, penis breath! Elliot! <laughs> Sit down. <clears throat> Dad would believe me. Maybe you ought to call your father and tell him about it. I can't. He's in Mexico with Sally. When you were doing the scenes with E.T., and obviously on the set they were controlling it with wires and poles and everything. Hydraulics, yeah. Yeah. And now you... Now, tell me how you believed that... This was uh, an actual creature you were talking to. Well, first of all, that's my job. Yeah. I, yes. Second of all. <laughs> Same way she does it with all, a dog head on yes, a stick. Yes, Yeah. <laughs> or even a handkerchief on a stick uh-huh. a lot of times. Right. When I did Lassie, you know, it's like, follow the yellow flag. <laughs> and, um, but um, E.T. was so well designed uh, by Carl Rombaldi. And um, just so real that it it was easy for all. It really was like working with another actor most of the time. And um, a lot of the times it was run with hydraulics. A lot of times, and I hope I'm politically correct here, there were little people uh, in the um, costume. Mm-hmm. And sometimes there was a little boy with no legs who was put in upside down in the costume and would walk on his hands, and that's how they got the very distinct walk that E.T. did. We even had a mimist, you know, that did all of the handwork and the arm work and, uh, you know, a, a lot of different creative elements went into bringing E.T. to life. And I've heard you say that your cha- the, the, the real challenge with that film was was the boredom was sitting around waiting for the technical oh stuff. Oh my god! Because you're not one of those people. You're one of the. You're not a big research or method person. You're a let's get on with it person. Yeah, it's like, you know, take me to the set, put me in front of the camera, give me twenty seconds, and let's go. That's how I like to work. <laughs> I just want to be Mary. I don't want to be D trying to find Mary. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, and I owe that all to my mentor, Charles Conrad, who was a great teacher out here in the 80s. Changed my life. I mean, I bowed down to Uta Hagen um, and her expertise and her talent. But for me, that method wasn't, wasn't right for me because whenever I try to figure things out in my head, I go the opposite way that I should. And like if I'm supposed to turn right, I can sit there and figure it out 
for 15 minutes, and damn if it's always not left, I should have gone. So when I found Charles, he had this, he had studied with Meisner and taught Meisner, but then he had created this whole technique of his own where you get your energy incredibly high, and then you throw all your attention off to the person or the dog or the scene that you're interacting with. Mm -hmm. And what that does is it really makes you totally leave your mind and really channel the character that you're, that you're doing. And for me, it was freedom. It was just absolute joyful freedom when I started working this way. And now, of course, Clint Eastwood and Meryl Streep and all the, a lot of people are shooting the rehearsals right now these days. Well, that's how we were working back in the 80s. Oh, interesting. That's yeah. That cast is just wonderful chemistry. Just you and Drew and Henry. Yeah. And the way, and I didn't yeah, know Harrison was Ford was cut from the film. I found that doing wow. research. Yes, he wasn't childlike enough. He's <laughs> playing a principal, <laughs> a school principal. Yeah. yeah. Now, also, you were in the movie Ten. Yes, and uh, I and you know, Bo Derek was the biggest sex symbol around. I know, and, and it wasn't me. Come on, uh, and I remember, <laughs> like even in the movie, they say to uh, Dudley Moore, "How does she rate from one to ten? And he says eleven. I mean, you'd have to be blind not to see the beauty of Bo Derrick. <laughs> yeah. And I have to say, too, that she's as beautiful a person inside. That's nice to hear. Um, I, re- I remember, I, here's another naivete story. Um, <clears throat> this was my big first big studio film. And I was the last one to read for this part. Uh, and Lynn Stallmaster had seen me in Lou Grant, uh-huh. where I played this hooker. And he thought I had the right uh, element for Mary Lewis. So I got down um, to Las Hadas, Mexico, where we were shooting. And, of course, Blake Edwards didn't do anything unless he did it the ultimate way. Uh and I walked into this suite that was all marble, and I thought, you know, you have to remember where I came from. And I'm going, holy hell, I didn't know there was a hotel room in the world that looked like this. <laughs> and, and, and I was there with, I think, four other um, supporting characters. And I watched... As one by one of them got fired and somebody else got hired. So I called my mom and I said, I'm never going to end up in this movie, but I'm having a really great vacation. Oh, that's great. <laughs> but I, I did end up in this movie. And I went to the set the first day and Blake came up to me and said, hi, dear. Just want to make sure everything's okay. And I said, oh, Mr. Edwards. My room is so beautiful. Thank you so much. He said, well, are there any concerns? Is there anything else I can do for you? And I said, well, and I looked to my left, and there was Bo's trailer. And I looked to my right, and there was Dudley's trailer. And I went, "Um, 
Mr. Edwards, where's my trailer? And he did not miss a beat. He looked at Tony Adams, his producer, and he said, where's her trailer? And Tony looked at him like a deer in headlights and went, it's on its way. Oh, that's great. (laughs) Mr. Edwards, it's on its way. I'm sorry, Miss Wallace. We had a little bit of technical difficulty with it, but it's on its way. Well, you know, I get home. My agents had never negotiated a dressing room for me. I didn't know that. I had gone out, you know, I'd just done independent films. So I'd gone out and because I had this bed scene with Dudley, I went, gee, I better go out and get some underwear or something. So I went out and bought like three really nice pairs of underwear. And Mr. Edwards looked at me and said, no, honey, we do that for you on the big <laughs> So I'm sitting on the bed getting ready to shoot. And he comes over and he sits down with me and he says, So, Dee, um, what do you feel about doing this nude? Well, my Kansas heart jumped up into my throat. I almost threw up, I think. But I held it together and I said, Well, Mr. Edwards... I think it's wrong for the part, you know. I mean, I shouldn't flaunt it in front of him because he hasn't been able to get it up with Bo and everything. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of other people in the movie are naked. And, you know, I just make my money doing commercials right now. So if you want to guarantee me another film, I guess I could try. <laughs> <laughs> and he looked at me and he said, okay, honey, I just thought I'd ask. And see, because he knew, he knew that would throw me off just enough. And and so he said, okay, let's, let's shoot. And I'm going, you know, so, so oh, he was, so oh, he was it. trying to work it into your performance. Yeah. Oh, I see. Knew exactly Very what he was doing. Devious. Yeah. But yeah, she was a nice person. I, oh, Bo? Well, oh, I didn't finish my story. So she looked at me when we were down by the trailers, and she said, oh, you know, Dee, you can come on in with me till your trailer gets here. Oh, wow. And she was lovely to work with. John, on the other hand, not so much. But he's dead. I can say that. Oh, John Derrick, anyway. her husband. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, not so much. I think I might, suddenly I'm, I'm remembering... Uh, uh, Dudley Moore replacing George Siegel in that movie. I think they Yes. Sh- yes. Yes. And you know, because George Siegel and, hold on, I won't, maybe I'm not right. Well, Dudley and Blake were in uh, a joint therapy group. Okay. And when George Siegel dropped out, Blake went to to Dudley. That's not that oh interesting. Oh my God! And, you know what a beautiful man Dudley Moore. Oh, was he? Oh, oh we danced on many tabletops in in Mexico. Oh, yeah. that's nice to hear. Big fan. This is interesting. Oh, that beautiful Dudley Moore. Uh, he he took the part of Ten that was originally meant for George Siegel, and I heard that George Siegel was author, offered author. The lead role. I don't know. Oh, I don't know that. Yeah, That's interesting. And I, he didn't want to do it, and then it went to Dudley Moore. I can't give you any scoop on that. I don't know. Now you got to tell us about John Carradine. Oh, John. Well, John was quite ill when we did the Howling. Um, 
and you'd never know it. What a trooper, man. I mean, some of his scenes ended up 2, 3 in the morning, and it was freezing out there. And in between, he and Christopher Stone, my I was engaged to at mm-hmm. the time, and uh, some of the other actors, Slim Pickens, we'd all sit around the fire and just listen to all those older actors tell their amazing stories. I'll bet they had them. Well, oh, Carradine went back. Yeah. I mean, we were saying the other day that I, I, I think if you look at people's IMDb pages, he's he has one of the longest IMDb pages of any actor in history because really? he just he worked forever. Well, yeah, that wouldn't surprise me. And and at you know, twenty five films a year or, or some some and, incredible output. You know, uh, Joe Dante was responsible for bringing all those wonderful actors in. We had Joe on this show. Oh, did you? Yes. Isn't he- Oh, my God. Couldn't you talk to him for days? He's the best. We could have done six episodes uh, with him. Oh, yeah. also in The Howling, another guest, uh, Dick Miller. Oh, we had Dick Miller here, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, you've just got the reunion going here. We did. We did. We had Roger Corman, too. But OMG. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, the, the other fun thing about that movie, too, is that, that Carradine plays Earl C. Kenton. That What Joe did is he gave them names of famous yes. directors. Yes. He named the characters after famous <laughs> horror directors. George Wagner and, and Terrence Fisher and people like that. Yeah, there's a lot of in-jokes in there. I mean, there's one part where they're in an office, and for no reason at all, there's a little uh, framed picture of Lon Chaney Jr. on the desk. <laughs> Just an homage. Yeah. There's all kinds of little references and things like that that Joe he just he raised that picture up so much with his ideas and his creativity so he had seen you in 10 uh yes and Dan Blatt had seen me uh in 10 and uh, of course I had to go in and audition I even had to go in for the callback um but fortunately I got it and um Hold on. <laughs> what happened? It's all right. No, never mind. Just a, a, a little sharing here in the room going on. Um, and then uh, Dan Black called me and said, you know, Dee, we've got a great cast lined up to be with you, but we cannot find a guy to play your husband. Now, why I had not put this together before, don't ask me. I'm not actually a real blonde. But... So I had said, oh, you know, Dan, there's this guy I worked with a long time ago, Christopher Smith or Stone. He'd probably be really good because they wanted somebody very virile Mm -hmm. who had a lot of vulnerability also. So they went out and found Christopher. He went in, auditioned. He got it on his own. And the next day, Dan Black called and and I answered, and he said, D, I, I thought I was calling Christopher Stone. You know that guy you recommended we hired him? I said, I know, we're engaged. <laughs> there was this long pause. Oh, and that's said, great. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, no, we're, just think we're, we can share a trailer. You can, you can save money on the trailer, right? So You're both terrific in that film. Thank you. And and Joe Dante, I, I've heard him say that you lived and you behaved. That the thing that impressed him, he maybe told us when we had him here, 
is that you acted as if the situation were actually happening to you. Well, again, back to Charles Conrad and my technique. It's that beautiful place where you cross over and and you're not de-doing Karen. Right. You become Karen. A secret society exists and is living among all of us. They're neither people nor animals, but something in between. Monstrous mutations whose violent natures take one. must be satisfied. I know what you're thinking, because I've been where you are. That's enough. Leave it. And it's possible Leave to it. imagine. Leave it. Cut. Leave it! But I have proof, and tonight I'm going to sh- show you something. Make you believe. I had an experience lately. I have a film coming out called Red Christmas, and the same thing happened to me. It's another tour de force mother defending her, you know, kids against something. It's quite an amazing little horror film, guys. I want you to look for it. We will. Red Christmas. Christmas. We'll plug it it, it it at the end of the episode, too. And. I I also heard that after E.T., which was a monster hit, uh, you you had some worries about your career continuing. Like, it was like you couldn't deal with the success. Yeah, that's true. Um, you know, I was raised that you never needed more than you needed, and you shouldn't have more than you need, and you— certainly should never, ever tout your own horn. And so when E.T. came out, I was quite overwhelmed with the reception and the publicity. And, uh, yeah, so I, it's true. I pulled back a little bit. Interesting. So you just felt like, yeah, because you were raised like, I'm, I'm not worthy of it. Yeah, and, uh, exactly. And and well, it, again, I was raised with this very strange dichotomy of you can do anything you want to do, Didi. Go out. You can do anything you want, and you still have to keep yourself small and humble. And that can be tricky in Hollywood, especially you know? that. I mean, E.T. was uh, monumental. And you hadn't been acting that long uh, when when E.T. happened. No, uh, it's quite a Hollywood story. By the time, from the time I went to New York out of Kansas to the time I started in E.T. was about six years. Yeah. And, and I'm, and you're in your, you're in your twenties at the time. So maybe it didn't dawn on you, but it must have in, in later years. I mean, it wasn't just anybody you were working with and, and, and coming up uh, I mean, it's like Uta Hagen and and, and and Steven Spielberg and Hal Prince. I mean, these are icons. Yeah, and Blake Edwards. And Blake Edwards. How, you're right. How can I forget Blake Edwards? Producer, director we've ever had. Yeah. You know? So. Um, yeah, and you're just sort of like as you, the way you would describe it is like you're you're stumbling along. Your naivete is carrying you. Yeah, and the universe will do that for us if we just get the hell out of the way. It's it's. It's our own thought processes and perceptions and fears and belief systems that get in the way of just going, 
you know, hey, here I am. Let's go. One more thing I want to say about the howling, too, is this is interesting. Robert Picardo, your co-star, an actor we like a lot. Oh, yes. Yeah. I yeah. love Bob. He's great. He's, he said that your aversion to violence aided your performance in the howling. I thought that was interesting. Yes, he's he's quite accurate about that. I, I, do, I don't like violence. I don't like holding a gun. Um, it, it, the whole thing in the adult bookstore and watching that thing and Joe made me watch it. Yeah, I, yeah. It was very hard for me. It was really very hard for me. I I remember I I met uh, uh, Robert Picardo. Mm-hmm. Funny and, guy. And yeah, he is. And and I before I could say before I could say hello to him. I just said to him, you know me, but I don't know you. Why is that right, boy? <laughs> See, we I'm got sure a- he appreciated that. He we, did. <laughs> we, we got a lot of cards here, so you've done so much, so we'll fly around. What, can you tell us anything about The Frighteners, a, a movie I just went back and watched with my wife? And you have you show a lot of range in that picture because you go from – being a, a character who is victimized, or, or when badass, yeah, to, to, <laughs> to, to a crazy killer, and I mean it's 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 quite a jump. Yeah, uh, I look for roles like that. I see. I love being a scream queen, quite frankly, because I love to scream. I love to do a lot of emotional work, and I love to play those arcs. You know, if there's a good story. And relationships developed in it. I those are the parts I love the most, and um, it was such a joy to work with Peter Jackson and everybody down in New Zealand. Um, a lot of people don't know my husband died while I was shooting that film, so um, <clears throat> it was hard. Uh, first, he had a heart attack, and they flew me back, and he was fine, and I flew back. And three days later, he died from an aneurysm, and I flew back and did his service, grabbed my little girl and my nanny, and all of us flew back so I could finish the film. And, you know, I I kept saying, well, um, how do I pay you for this? And they, they just kept saying, we'll settle up at the end. And I'm I'm sure I would have owned them more than what my salary was. And uh, when I went in to settle up, they just said, no, uh, Peter and Mr. Zemeckis just want to give you this as their gift. I mean, it, you know, it was it was really a family affair. Everybody gathered around us and took care of my little girl. They even, she was about, well, she wasn't even seven. And she saw my flying scene. Oh, yeah. So, oh, Mommy, I want to fly. So they built her a little suit. And took her up so she could fly like Peter Pan and played Foursquare with her. Michael would get out at lunch and play Foursquare with her. And it was just such a a humane, beautiful shoot. I I often wish that um, we could apply more of what the Europeans do in their shooting process here. It's... It's so much more humane and... Um, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean the hours. Oh, I see. 
are so much more humane. Um, you lead a much more balanced lifestyle. Uh, anybody that's with somebody who's having a baby, you know that you've got two weeks paid leave and you're going to have a job when you come back. Um, one of the things that struck me the most was uh, anybody that had a problem or an issue, down to the best boy, everybody would sit around at a portion of lunch and talk about it and work it out to you know, everybody's satisfaction. Everybody was respected and appreciated. And um, I don't know. It was my experience with Red Christmas I just shot in Australia. Very much like that again. And sometimes I think we just work ourselves to death in America at the expense of our families and our health and a lot of things. Yeah, I think a lot of people would agree with that. And and you mentioned your daughter, who's a very busy actress. Oh, Gabrielle. Right yes, she is. Thank you. And and much like her mother, is not lacking in either talent or looks. Oh well, thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. Yeah, my my kid and I are really tight. She, I, I consider her my very best friend, and uh, she's had a lot of success this year. She co-wrote, co-directed, and starred in her first short film and has won a lot of awards for it. We're actually in competition on the short <laughs> circuit in all the festivals now. And um, somebody said to me, well, you're both up for Best Actress. And I said, please, God, let her win. <laughs> you know, uh, I've been there. I, I mean, I love to win. Of course, I love to win. I, of course, I love to be honored. But nothing better than seeing your kid. Yeah, getting it. Well, here's the inevitable question: When she broached the idea of 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 being an actress, what what was your immediate reaction? Was was there some trepidation? Not at all. No. Not at all. Um, I have to tell you, I knew she was destined to do this by the time she was three years old. Every night of our lives, she put on a skit, she sang a song, she did a dance. I mean, and she will produce in her life. I, I never really did, but Gabrielle certainly would. And I've got to tell you, it's been a good life for me. I don't feel like I've lost myself. I don't feel like I've ever had to or would let myself um, give up anything of who I really am. You know, um, I'm still that naive, although a little more educated, uh, girl from Kansas. And I like being that way. And, yeah, uh, love my wine, love sex, and let the <laughs> F word fly, you know, uh, more than I should. But you still can't take the Kansas out of the girl. God bless you, Dee. Now, I've asked a couple of our guests this. I think we've had 170 guests or something like that to date. Uh, not not everybody, but I ask it from wow. I ask it from time to time. You, you, do you pinch yourself? Do you look back and say, I, "I I I can't believe how this has how this has turned out." You were down to your last nine dollars when you got your first your national commercial for United Airlines, and, yep. and then one and looking back now, it's Blake Edwards and and uh, and John Carradine and <laughs> Hal Prince and Robert Zemeckis and my and the, and the whole thing. It's 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 really quite a journey. You know, I, I've been asked that a couple of times, and if I an, answer it honestly, 
I feel like it was all meant to be. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. I, I just feel like I had a dream, and I was supposed to fulfill that dream. Um, when I started my healing work, everybody said, what? You're an actress. Nobody's going to, and you swear on top of it. You can't be a healer. <laughs> a swearing you know? healer. But I've always said, who likes sex? Uh, <laughs> but I, I, I've always said, you know, this is who I am. When I, when I got here, I had a, a meeting with a very big agent. He said, well, you know, you have to do this and you have to lose your accent and you have to have your tits done and blah, blah, blah. And I looked at him and I said, dude, if I had all those things done, it wouldn't go with who I am. It wouldn't go with what I sell. Right. What I sell is who I am. And, uh, you know, the first time I got a big agent, it was from a religious film. My first big film was a religious film called All the King's Horses, where I played a battered wife. And I invited 10 top middle agents to a screening room over at Radford. And everybody said, they're going to laugh you out of Hollywood. And I said, look, if they can't see that I can act, even in the genre of a religious film, I don't want to freaking have them as my agents anyway. And do you know, nine out of 10 of those agents wanted me. But I think it's, again, because just like doing a scene from Mary Mary, I said, no, for me, for me, this is right. For me, this is who I am. And if all of us would just do more of that instead of being what everybody else wants us to be, the universe says yes to you a lot more. You hear that, Gilbert? <laughs> stop, be, stop being you. I, I, he's exactly right. Everything you say is the opposite of how my mind works. <laughs> well, you're never too old to well, learn. But that works for you. You see, that works for you. You got to find your own formula yeah. out there, you, right? You've done things on your terms, Dee. It's very admirable. I, I have, and I'm proud of that. Let me ask you why you've always wanted to play a nun. <laughs> Damned if I know. I don't know, but when I find the right nun and the right, I I want, I want to play. Someone who is conflicted within themselves and fighting who they've become against who they really are. I think that's what it is. And you'd have and, to play a nun who likes sex. Like <laughs> was a good screamer. Well, I think there's a few of them out there. I'm just saying. Now we're getting somewhere. I know there's some priests out there. But now we're getting now we're getting in hot water here, so I better back off. That's hilarious. Well, I'm going to throw some names at you, at you here. Oh, you dear know, God. Our, our, this show is, is really uh, about old show business. We love, we love showbiz history. So if I said some of these names that you, people you worked with earlier in your career, uh, you were in Barnaby Jones with Buddy Ebsen. Oh, yes, I was. <laughs> right at the very, very, when very beginning. you were beginning. very young, when you first went to L.A. Like a daddy. Yeah? It's like a daddy, yeah. How about Carl Malden? Oh, Same. Same, just a beautiful man, beautiful man. And that was, you know, the streets of San Francisco. That was my first 
No, my second. I baked cookies to get my first job. Was that Lucas Tanner? <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. And I, with David Hartman. You, you know, you couldn't you couldn't get on the lots. So I baked chocolate chip cookies and wrapped them up in cellophane, and I went to the gate, and I said, hi, I have deliveries. And they said, yeah, go on through. Oh, that's so, so smart. So I took all of these cookies, and I was taking to all the casting directors, and I got to Ruben Cannon, and of course he was the head of casting at the time, and he came out and he went, "Oh, chocolate chip cookies." I tell all this stuff in my book, and and I said, um, "Hi, I'm Dee Wallace, and I just got here from Kansas, which was a better line than New York." I figured it still worked, and he said, "Well, come on in, let's talk." So I went in, and we were talking, and he got a call from the studio that the girl who was playing the waitress who had six lines was sick and they were supposed to shoot in three hours. And what the hell did he want? And he covered the phone and he looked at me and he said, what size do you wear? I said, what size do you need, baby? (laughs) (laughs) And I stuffed myself in that size four, even though I was closer to a six. And that was my first gig, and Streets of San Francisco was my second. Yeah, in 1974, Lucas Tanner in 1975, Streets of San Francisco. Now, do you find that these old guys in the business just have a more level attitude, like it's the younger ones that are full of themselves, and these older guys... These older guys have been around long enough to know that you're hot when you're hot and you're not when you're not, you know, and it's just a job. It's not who you are. It's just a job that we love to do. Yeah. Yes. I don't want to make any blanket statements, but the last time I worked um, on a movie of the week, a short film with um, a lot of young kids I was working with a very uh, another very well-known actress, and they were getting ready to do her close-up, and the AD said, okay, roll it, and all these guys were on their phones and talking, and, I, and I'm waiting for the director to say something, and nobody says anything, and finally, I just, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I know it's not my place, but... We would really appreciate it if you would put your fucking phones down, stop talking, and be a part of the scene. You are working with an iconic actress here. Learn from her. Oh. And they did. It was not my place, but nobody else stepped forward, and it was just rude. And it's wrong. And it's not respectful to your other actors, no matter... How old you are. It's not respectful to your other actors. Oh, good for you. Yes. And that was my Baptist preacher right there. Bravo. Thank you very much. Okay, here's another question. Uh, this is uh, now just uh, indulge me here with this research. Do uh, you want to make remake an Idolapino film? Was it Snake Pit? No. I can't remember the name of okay, it. Okay, we'll, we'll look it up. But it was a film in, in an insane asylum? Yes. Okay. Was that Snake Pit? I think she's in that. I mean, uh, we'll sure. double, we'll double gonna check it. You're going to make me look like no, I'm for, a true no, no, we'll, now. No, no, but we can cut it out. I was just <laughs> curious about it. What, what about Cloris Leachman? You did oh, Shadow Play. About, yeah, Cloris Leachman. Fabulous, incredible, zany, crazy, 
unbelievably out there actress. Gilbert got to work and with I, her, too. I loved every minute of Cloris. That's good to know. How about uh, Tommy Lee Jones? Stranger on Tommy. my land. Now, Tommy was a tough one. <laughs> Tommy, <laughs> you know, he didn't know me. I was nobody. And and he was a big movie star doing this movie of the week that uh-huh. I'm not sure he wanted to do. Um, and so we, we were talking the first day when we were reading through everything and yeah, well, what have you done? Yeah, that, yeah, mm-hmm, uh-huh, okay. And and uh, so somebody came in and said, uh, Miss Wallace, we want to take you out to meet your horses. And I said, oh, great. And he looked at me and he said, you're doing your own riding? And I said, oh, you bet I'm doing my own riding. I wouldn't miss that for anything. Well, I changed before his very eyes. If I was going to get up and do my own writing. I was one of the guys. And from then on, Tommy Lee and I got along just fine. How about that? Wow. I love that. And boy, did I love working with him. And I remember we played this one scene, and I saw my part uh, being very um, dramatic in this one scene. And so we finished the rehearsal, and he very quietly looked at me and went, that the way you're going to play it? And I said, yep. He said, okay, I'll go the other way. <laughs> oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah, it was very insightful to me. Here's just a couple others to indulge us, and these are some of our favorite actors. We mentioned Theodore Bikel. Yes, And also beautiful. Jack Guilford. Oh, my gosh. The best of the best, you guys. You know, they, true professionals kind men, gentlemen. They're gentlemen, yeah. you know, and and very respectful and of everybody on the set. Jack Guilford had some struggles, too, in his career. He was blacklisted. He didn't have an easy path. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah, he was black, and Theodore Bikel barely escaped the Holocaust. Both of them had real hardship. Well, I think there's something to be said for hardship giving you a true appreciation of life and the blessings that you receive, for sure. Can you tell us, before we uh, we, we start to wind down, can you tell us anything about the experience of making The Hills Have Eyes? I know you've been asked about it a ton. Well, the, you know, The Hills Have Eyes was let's put on a show. We all... Um, Lord, we all had to stay in the same trailer. You know, we, all of us, we, it was like, oh, my God, I got a job. I got a job <laughs> as an actor, right? But again, you were a young actress again. Yeah, yeah, well, one of my first things, for sure. Right. And we all had to stay in the same trailer, and 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 the bathroom broke, and we froze to death, and half the time I stayed in my car. <laughs> it's the only place you could go to sleep we we died of the heat during the day and froze at night yeah but again it was you know it was a gig and it was your first gig and it how exciting that was and you know and even then they stuck me with a baby right that's right ah, what that's is right that? that's right 
Yeah, you'd, you'd been in the Stepford Wives in a small part, but The Hills Have Eyes was kind of the first yeah. prominent oh, feature yeah. role. I, I don't even consider being in the Stepford Wives. It was uh, You want to hear my one line that sure, got left? Sure, we do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I got it because I was sitting there uh, in this office uh, waiting to, I started to say audition, interview for a part-time receptionist job. And Brian Forbes came out, and he kept walking back and forth looking at me, and he finally came over and he said, are you an actress? And I said, I am. He said, you want to be in a movie? And I went, I do. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, he didn't even audition me because obviously he knew I probably wasn't going to have much to do in that role. But, um, yeah, it was, let me tell you, watching those three completely, Completely different actresses. Yes, can imagine. And how they worked on the set and worked with each other. And, you know, that that was a schooling right there. It was an education. <laughs> For me, yeah. yeah. Two, two more quick ones. You made a movie called Club Life with Tony Curtis. Yes. Any memories? I did. Oh, boy. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, you know, my mother always told me, if you can't say something. Uh-oh. <laughs> you're you're well, the second guest no, where we brought up Tony Curtis well, and we got that response. No, let me tell you. I, I worked with Mr. Curtis right after he'd gotten out of rehab. And we did a lot of our scenes the first week together. He was such a gentleman and n- so prepared and Beautiful to work with, and then he relapsed. Oh. And it was like working with somebody I'd never worked with before. So when when he stayed straight, he was a He was bro. beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was my experience. Yeah. Of him, yes. Well, you've worked with everybody. I mean, we could go we could go on for hours, Dee. There's so many names here, so many things you've done, so many kinds of roles that you've played. Uh, so much rage. You've done melodrama. You've done horror films. Obviously, you've done westerns. You've done soaps. You've done comedies. It's 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 really a quite an impressive run. Thank you. I ain't done yet, baby. I know. Ah. Tell us about tell us about Red Christmas. <laughs> oh, I love this film. Um, well, Red Christmas is a Christmas horror film, uh, and it gave me the opportunity to do another kind of tour de force female role like I did in Cujo. And um, it was in Australia, and I had done a movie in Australia years and years ago for Disney uh, called A Christmas Down Under. And uh, the thought of going back to Australia was just very exciting for me. But um, this was very small crew. We shot with literally four lights. If there's any filmmakers out there you want to see how creative you can be with almost nothing. You make sure you see this film. It's unbelievable. Okay. And I, the cast, the rest of the cast are the creme de la creme of Australian actors. Okay. So we could go uh, for a nice Christmas horror film, right, Gilbert? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I can't think of too many of those off the top of my head. Yeah, there's not, there's not a lot. And, and it approaches, it deals with abortion and abortion issues from all kinds, 
from all perspectives. And one of the actors in it is an adult Down syndrome uh, gentleman that plays my youngest son in it. So it has so many qualities uh, that you never see in a horror film. Red Christmas. And that's, yeah, it really just um, just really drew me. Uh, I have another film that's coming out the beginning of the year called Death House. Okay. With a lot of iconic film horror actors, a lot of iconic actors in that one. And then I'm all over the film festival place. One of my favorites is a thing called Charlie's Gift where they aged me to 80 years old. Wow. And it's just a beautiful, beautiful little story, true story. And I heard you like horror films and horror actors. I I like to do them. I'm kind of wussy to watch them. Interesting. Yeah. Can you go yeah. back and watch Cujo and the Howling? Is it is it? Do, are you allowing yourself to get caught up in the story, or do you look at it like home movies? Like, oh, I remember I was having a bad hair day, or. <laughs> no, that, that goes away after you've seen it, you know, like 20 times. I see. Uh, yeah, I can go back. As a matter of fact, I just watched Critters with Gabrielle. Mm-hmm. Uh, she had never seen it. And I, I forgot how great that movie was. It's fun. I, it is. It's, and I'm, I, really, uh, I really thought... Now, see, I've gotten away from the purity of that acting a little bit. I've got to get back there. That's interesting. When you did Cujo, did you have a hard time going home and just uh, showering? Yeah. I had a hard time, period. I I blew out all my adrenal system. They treated me for exhaustion afterwards. Wow. Wow. It was literally the hardest thing emotionally, physically, psychologically that I've ever done in my career. And it's the film I'm proudest of. Well, it, it, it kind of uh, it kind of bums me out that that horror films are considered, you know, genre pictures that they're not. Yeah, they're not really considered for some of the major awards because that's a fantastic performance. Thank you. And, Thank you. And that wasn't a performance that you could just go home, have a drink and go to sleep afterwards. Yeah, it took a while uh, to come down, and I remember uh, some close friends of ours came up to visit, and we went out to dinner, and I fell asleep on the table. Because <laughs> you were you were uh, that drained. Yeah, all all you could do. They picked me up at five a.m. every morning, and um, you know, most people think we're dying of the heat. We actually were freezing. It was Northern California. Uh, in the winter, and so it was very rainy and cold. Most of the time, we we finally had him put a heater in the front of the car because Danny's little lips were just oh, chattering away. We were so cold. Can imagine. Qu- two quick things, and we'll let you we'll let you go here, Dee. You've been great. Uh, a little a little trivia that ties into our podcast. Uh, you made a movie, a TV movie, for our pal Bill Persky called Wait Till Your Mother Gets Home. Oh, you're friends with Bill. No, we, yes. have, we love Bill. He lives a few blocks from here. We've had him on this show oh, three times. Are you kidding? No. Oh, please. You've got to promise me to call and give him my love. We absolutely will. Oh, we'll give, we'll I do just that. We'll do more than that. We'll give you his email. I, I did. Oh, I'd love that. The, the last uh, time. I did it. He just two had a birthday two days ago. With Bill. 
but wait till your mother gets home. Yeah, uh, we just, it was just one of those golden movies of the week. You know, Blue Andre produced it. I, I worked with them a lot, too, uh, in the day. And, um, gosh, Bill, gentle, good. Oh, he's the best. Focused, yeah. And, and, and a total curmudgeon. <laughs> yes. uh, yeah, that's what we love about him. <laughs> he just they, had a birthday. We should, we should we should clone more Bill Persky. Absolutely. Sure. And here's another one. You played the mother of one of our former podcast guests. I'm going to let Gilbert try to guess who that oh. was. Oh, geez. I'll give you a hint. We did the show from his apartment. Oh, it didn't come to my apartment. <laughs> <laughs> You're a little far away, dude. <laughs> Oh, God, You're, we did it for... Wait, 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 wait. Not Larry Storch. No, yeah. how could she play Larry Storch's mother? Yeah. Like Thanks. 95. Thanks La- a lot for that. Larry Storch is like a thousand now. Oh, if it was tra- a time travel scene. I'm trying to think of the people I'll who just support start packing like this, okay? Wait. <laughs> we, we, we... Oh, God. She's a, she's a sport. I'm, I'm, I'm... It thinking. was his apartment down in Tribeca. Wait a second. Well, Jeff he had an Ross. Infl- he had an inflatable reindeer in his living room. Oh, Josh Groban. Josh Groban. Yeah. <laughs> he has an inflatable reindeer. I'm never yes, going to let does. him forget that. Yes, now. he does. You tell him. We- yes, on the office. Yep, on what the office. What a dear man he is. Yep. Sweetheart. Yep, yep, yep. And so talented. He is. He is. So you have some connections to this show. I, I remember with Josh uh, Groban. We were taking pictures, and one of them, of course, I grabbed the inflatable deer and started doing obscene things with it. Yes. Of course you did. Of course he did. And and his manager or PR person said, no, no, we cannot use that. And he, Josh, was, no, that's funny. Definitely, I definitely want to put that on Twitter. Yeah, let's put that on the Christmas album. <laughs> and you never played Larry Storch's mom. No. <laughs> no, she never That's in did. another life, babe. She, she never did. <laughs> See, this was great. Like I said, we could go on. We've got like 25 cards here. You've done everything. You've worked with everybody. Tell us about the website, the, your, your books. You can find everything about me at I am am. I am dwallace.com. And you're on Twitter, and I noticed. I'm all over Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. Yeah. I think it's D underscore Wallace. Um, and, uh, and you're yeah, teaching I have acting five too? books. But if you want to read the one about my career and everything, that's Bright Light. And everything's on Amazon. Everything, you know, that I've written is also on Amazon. Mm-hmm. And mention your daughter again. Gabrielle Stone, look for her. She's she's quite awesome. We're actually having a film written for the two of us right now. Oh, that's oh, nice. Wow. And it's nice to see yeah. the acting passing down from your mom to you to the next generation. Yeah, you know, one of the highlights of my life was that I was able to get my mom her SAG card. Oh, she had, dream, she had dreamed about it. Oh, all how'd that her happen? Life. Um, my series, Together We Stand. Okay. And um, <clears throat> I went to Al Burton, and I said, Al, there's this little scene of, uh, 
for this lady who's a neighbor in the apartment thing where the kids could could you audition my mom, please? She's a beautiful actress. And Al looked at me and said, she's hired. Oh, that's <laughs> wow. wonderful. And, and then when we did the new Lassie, he had her out uh, to do another scene in that. And um, it was just, you know, that's that's the best when you can give your mom a gift like that. Oh, wow. It's just the best. Wow, I wish I could get my mom into set. <laughs> She's 90. Of course, she's not an well, actress, so it's going to be tough. Uh, well, no, no. We're, we're using a lot of real people, if you hadn't noticed. Oh, that's days. true. That's true. Yeah. Dee, this has been wonderful. And a, a, oh, my God. A, so much fun, a you great guys. ride. And, and we've been discussing you for years now, saying. Uh-oh. She, oh. <laughs> well, you were, you were, we should tell our listeners who you were booked a couple of months ago to do this. What happened? Oh, something happened. You had a you had a uh, scheduling conflict. Of course I did. But that's okay. <laughs> I'm Gil- sorry, guys, se- but Gil- we're here now. <laughs> we started this four years ago, three years ago, and Gilbert's been saying, "What about Dee Wallace?" Like every th- every three months, <laughs> call her. Well, thank and he- you. And here you thank are. Thank you for your persistence, because this has been a blast. Oh, we're so glad you've entertained us, and thanks for entertaining us all these years. Thank you. Well, this has been Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast with my co-host Frank Santo Padre, and we've been talking to a woman who likes sex. <laughs> and, and, you and, bet, baby. And wants to play a nun. Yeah. So go figure. <laughs> the great D. Wallace. <laughs> I love it. The, our listeners are going to love this show. I hope so, because I love them. I love my fans. Well, I do. And and you're the star of so many movies that are people are obsessed with. Yes, like The Hills Have Eyes and Cujo. A lot of Howling. iconic movies. Yeah. yeah. Oh, you know, I know we've already signed off. That's okay. One one thing people should really tune into if you have younger children and you want to introduce them to the late, great me. (laughs) Um, Amazon Prime, just add magic. It's a beautiful, beautiful little show, and it's great for um, kids anywhere from 6 through 14. They love it. It's one of the highest-rated shows Amazon Prime has. Okay. Just add magic. Yeah. I play the grandmother. Oh, you do? For the first time. <laughs> but she likes sex. So. Oh, of course. <laughs> well, that's in your you're in your writer by now. <laughs> I want it in my bio. <laughs> like- oh, and before I go, Patrick McGee, you were. Oh, oh, Mac McNee. McNee. Yes, the great Pat. Yeah. Steed. Course. John Steed. Boy, do you think he had some stories? Woo! <laughs> You've worked with everybody. You know, a, pre- a lot of them. What a journey! A what them. a journey! And I'd like you to know that after hearing your uh, your approach to life, Gilbert is a changed man. Oh uh, yes, I'm- well I hope so because you needed to be cleaned up. 
<laughs> I want to tell our listeners that Gilbert's wearing a T-shirt from a radio station, and when we, we he walked into the room, we have Dee here on a monitor, and she said, "Thanks for dressing up, Gilbert." <laughs> And shorts, you know, it's like butt swimming. Well, I've got the legs for it. You do, baby. You do. Dee, we love you. Thank you so much. Thank uh, you, Dee. Thank D. you. Bye. Mwah. Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast is produced by Dara Gottfried and Frank Santapadre with audio production by Frank Verderosa. Our researchers are Paul Rayburn and Andrea Simmons. Web and social media is handled by Mike McPadden, Greg Pear, Nancy Chinchar, and John Bradley Seals. Special audio contributions by John Beach. Special thanks to John Murray, John Fodiatis, and Nutmeg Creative. Especially Sam Giovanco and Daniel Farrell for their assistance.